From API, this is Energy Tomorrow Radio, your source for information and conversation about the most important energy issues of the day. I'm your host, John Bisney. My guests today are Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, Jerry Taylor. He also writes for the Cato at Liberty blog, and API's Chief Economist, John Felmy. Gentlemen, welcome. You know, both chambers of Congress have now passed their versions of a new energy bill, and they're taking the first steps now toward working out their differences to try to come up with a final product they could send to the president. So we'll get to your views on several of the key provisions in these bills in a minute, but first, if you will, Jerry, let us know sort of where you're coming from. Describe Cato's basic philosophy on economic policy in the U.S. Well, Cato's uh, general approach to public policy is that government's job is to protect your rights to life, liberty, and property, and leave government at that. That's the same vision our founding fathers had when they established the American Republic. It's not really a liberal or a conservative point of view, given the contemporary definitions of liberal or conservative. I guess you can call us libertarian. We believe that, for the most part, uh, government should step aside and uh, respect economic freedom and liberty and allow free markets to work. All right, great. Let me get your thoughts now on some of the provisions in these energy bills. First, what about the House proposal that would require significant increases in the amount of ethanol blended into gasoline uh, for the nation over the next 14 years? Well, the interesting thing about that proposal is that uh, it, it's towards cellulosic ethanol only. It, it, in fact, it specifically takes corn ethanol out of the picture. The reason for that is that uh, the increased production of corn ethanol has increased pump prices, increased grocery prices, has caused a great deal of uh, economic hardship, not only in the United States, but around the world. And even the United States Senate is becoming a little bit leery of that. So what they're interested in now is cellulosic ethanol, which is the kind of fuel that you can make from all the woody biomass of a crop, not just the fruit of the crop, say the corn kernel. Uh, If you ask the question, gee, how economic is cellulosic ethanol, the answer would be, who the heck knows? There's not a single commercial uh, operating cellulosic ethanol plant on all of planet Earth. And so the cost estimates that you hear are the purest of wild guesses. That tells you how uneconomic it is now. And I doubt that we'll actually see these numbers met. The, the, uh, the mandate is to go from zero to billions of gallons of this stuff, and the government can you know, ask of it all they want or mandate it all they want, but they can't translate wish into reality with a legislative order. Yeah, John Felmy, where does the oil and gas industry stand on this idea? Well, we're concerned that uh, too big a mandate uh, that can't be achieved uh, could cause problems for consumers. Uh, if you look at the 36000000000 billion-gallon mandate, uh, most experts feel that just with corn, uh, you can get to maybe $15 billion, according to USDA and other sources and so on. And so what you're relying on is an unproven technology that we don't know if it'll work, if it'll be commercial. And as Jerry said, uh, we don't have a commercially operating operation, so we don't know what the costs are. If I can, the uh, the head of the Energy Information Administration, a guy named Guy Caruso, gave a talk in November of 2006 in which he estimated that the the, uh, capital costs associated with building a cellulosic ethanol plant are probably uh, around $7.50 a gallon is what it works out to. Now, of course, you can quibble with that figure because who the heck knows? There's no plant to refer to. But that's that's before you even get to the feedstock cost of cellulosic ethanol. So that's that's how far away we are at the moment from having a viable cellulosic ethanol industry. All right, Jerry, what about uh, the price gouging provision in the Senate bill? Where do you and Cato stand on that? This would, uh, it's aimed at preventing service stations from raising the prices in times of crisis. Now, the House voted separately for that, so both chambers are on record behind that idea. Well, it's a price control law. 
the bottom line is that it's an attempt to control prices uh, during economic uh, hardship. Now, that's exactly the time where you don't want to control prices because price controls lead to shortages. And a law against price gouging, to the extent to which it has any effect, is going to deter people from pricing their product at what supply and demand would uh, otherwise warrant. I mean, the reason, for instance, when Hurricane, uh, uh, the second hurricane hit the Gulf of Mexico after uh, Katrina, the reason why you saw virtually every one of those service stations in Texas lose their gasoline is because they didn't price gouge. They were deterred from doing so out of fear of government action, out of fear of reprisal, out of fear, bad press perhaps, but they didn't. They would priced it normally. The product ran out. I'm not sure why anybody has benefited or advantaged by disappearing products. It's better that we leave the market alone and let supply and demand dictate price. John, you agree with that? Well, it really is a case of it's, it's price controls. And if we've learned anything over the last centuries, uh, price controls haven't worked since uh, Roman times. The Romans in- instituted price controls on salt in 506 B.C. Didn't work then. It's not likely to work now. So we would say let's not repeat the mistakes of the past. All right, Jerry, there's a provision of the Senate bill that would let the United States government sue the OPEC oil cartel for violating antitrust laws, essentially. And the House, again, is also on record uh, behind that idea. What, what, what do you think? I think this shows you how absurd government has become and how absurd politics has become. First of all, uh, since when did uh, the United States Congress uh, uh, get the idea that it could apply domestic law to economic actors all over planet Earth? I mean, is the United States able to apply its domestic law to economic actors in the Middle East simply because we have a really big army? Or is it because that our wisdom is so much greater than, say, the Saudi government's? The bottom line is, is American law should apply only to American terrain. And uh, the idea that uh, applying that law abroad would lead to positive ends, I think, is relatively silly. After all, what would we do? Would we have David Petraeus slap the cuffs on Nuri al-Maliki and send the 101st Airborne into Baghdad? Iraq, after all, is a member of OPEC. Are we going to have the Saudi royal family, when they come down to Texas to meet with President Bush and talk about the war on al-Qaeda? Are we going to jump him in his bed and then send him down to Abu Ghraib for questioning? This is just simple posturing, and it's ridiculous. It will be ignored, and it makes us look like the imperialist power that we always deny that we are. John, your thoughts? Well, I'm not a constitutional scholar to say what the the, uh, rules and provisions are, but I do find it puzzling that the very group that we are talking about uh, trying to get to produce more oil to help consumers to to, uh, help the worldwide oil markets, that we're trying to pass provision that bashes them. That's really puzzling to me. Jerry, another idea that is not a part of these energy bills, but it's out there right now, the chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, John Dingell, the Democrat from Michigan, plans to introduce legislation that would raise the federal gasoline tax by 50 cents a gallon. And the idea here is to discourage driving, and that way you reduce greenhouse gas emissions. What, what about that idea? Well, if you look at the academic literature and ask the question, what are the social costs of global warming according to uh, you know, mainstream economic analyses, and then how does that translate into cost of gasoline? You'll find that the estimates are that, uh, given median estimates of uh, greenhouse gas damages, that actually should increase the cost of gasoline if you were to reflect those costs in a gallon of gasoline, something around 12 cents a gallon. That's about it. So if you asked economists what the tax on gasoline ought to be to uh, uh, equal the amount of greenhouse damages associated with consuming that gasoline, it's not 50 cents a gallon, it's 12. This is why you don't want politicians doing this sort of thing. They don't care what the academic literature says. They want a nice round number that sounds good to voters. The bottom line here, though, is that If we are going to reduce greenhouse gases, this is an if-then proposition. I don't believe we necessarily should. But if it is going to be our mission to have the federal government reduce greenhouse gases, the best way of going about this is with a carbon tax that applies to all sectors of the economy equally and then allows 
each economic actor and decision maker to decide for themselves how to respond to it, not to apply disparate taxes to this sector of the economy, then that sector of the economy, and then to dictate to uh, businessmen exactly how they're supposed to comply with uh, lower greenhouse gas orders. That's all wrong. And so I think that the thrust of what Dingle's trying to do by increasing the talk of a carbon tax and all that's probably uh, a worthwhile thing because it introduces honesty to the discussion. But by uh, encrusting that uh, that legislation with this sort of thing, I think is a bad idea. John Felmy, API's chief economist, your take on that? Well, I think in terms of carbon reduction and discussions about what you do as far as uh, reducing carbon emissions and greenhouse gases, I think our industry is suggesting that what we need is an open and transparent discussion of all the options. Let's look at what everyone is talking about, whether it be carbon taxes or whether it be cap-and-trade systems or it be mandates. Uh, What are the implications? What are the costs? Uh, What are the unintended consequences? And let's have a full, transparent discussion of this, recognizing that things like gasoline taxes uh, are uh, negative for lower-income consumers, can have uh, negative impacts. Uh, But let's have a full discussion of all the potential options. All right, let's talk about a broader kind of tax increase. The House has approved a $15 billion package of tax increases on the oil and natural gas industry. John, what are your thoughts about that idea? Well, this is really a repeat of the mistakes of the past. If you go back to the 80s, we had windfall profits tax that raised the cost uh, to the industry, resulted in lower production, increased imports, and exactly opposite of what the Congress has said they want to do as far as uh, reducing imports. Uh, It didn't work back then. It's not likely to work now. And there's no argument you can make that raising the costs of a product, which is what you're doing when you're increasing taxes on the industry, will help consumers. There's no way you can make that argument. Jerry? Well, I agree with that, but I'd go further and also make the moral point. The government has no business instituting a form of one-way capitalism, where it's okay for the oil and gas business or investors to actually lose money or to make very little money compared to the uh, uh, industrial average. But the minute they ever make about average returns on their investment, or even maybe a little bit better than average returns, the Congress is going to step along with pun- step along and impose punitive taxes. Because if you look at information you can find the en- from the Energy Information Administration's own website, and you ask the question, gee, what is the return on investment capital, the oil and gas business, from 1973 to the present, you'll find that returns have actually been lower than the S&P 500 during that period of time. So over the historical long run, taking a uh, long-range view of things, the oil business is a pretty lousy business to be in. Generally, you don't make very much money in the oil and gas business. They're arguably making some pretty good money now. Actually, not that much better than the S&P 500 on average, but they're doing better than they usually do. Not as anywhere near as dramatically uh, well as as politicians have you believe. But to then step along and to throw down a more punitive tax on the industry is, is, in my opinion, not only immoral, but it's going to be very bad for consumers because why would anybody invest in an industry where you're allowed to lose money or maybe break even, but you're never allowed to make any above-average profits? Nobody would invest in an industry like that. If I could just amplify a little bit, I think an important point that Jerry made was that they're taking money from investors, and these are millions of Americans who have invested the hard-earned savings. A lot of it is in retirement plans. A lot of it is in pension funds and so on. And so the notion that they can take money from the industry is that no one gets hurt, and we know that's not true. Uh, Millions of Americans uh, have invested in pension funds and IRAs and so on, and they will suffer if this tax goes through. All right, let's take a look at these bills now from sort of the broad perspective, what they are intended to do, say their supporters. And some people in Congress, the backers, say that these provisions taken together could help the U.S. become more energy independent. Uh, Jerry, I'll let you go first on this one. Is, Is that legitimate? 
Energy independent is, frankly, an idiotic preoccupation of American politics. If the United States was energy independent, it would not protect us from supply disruptions abroad. After all, the supply disruption in the Middle East is going to increase the price of crude oil everywhere, no matter where it's produced. So even if we are energy independent, say losing Iran from the global market would have just as much of an impact on our prices as if all of our oil came from Iran prior to the disruption. So it provides no price protection, if, and it, nor does it provide uh, any reason to keep the United States necessarily out of the Middle East. For instance, Great Britain's energy independent. You would think that that energy independence would perhaps uh, uh, incline the British government to not be involved in, uh, in disputes in the Middle East and whatnot, but that's not the case at all. Tony Blair was very quick to get involved in the Middle East. The fact is, is we're there for reasons that have very little to do with our energy imports. We're there for other reasons as well. So even energy independence isn't going to uh, a lot liberate us from concern about what happens in the Middle East. The bottom line is we import oil for a reason. It's cheaper than getting energy from other sources. That's why we import. There is no BTU exception to Adam Smith's defense of free trade. If, if we try to reduce uh, our imports from abroad and increase energy independence via government, it is by definition a prescription to raise energy prices, and this is exactly the wrong time for the government to be doing things to consciously raise energy prices on American consumers. So oil imports actually serve to reduce prices below where they otherwise would be and constraining them will increase price. John, what about the overall alleged purpose of these bills? Well, the, the purpose in terms of energy independence, I would agree with Jerry on. It's a slogan, but it's not real proper policy. Uh, what I would also say is that if you look at the individual provisions of the bills, they don't do anything to stimulate additional supplies. If you look at the provision for raising taxes, it basically could result in what happened with windfall profits taxes, where it uh, could lower production, increase imports, and do the wrong thing. So uh, all the provisions together really are a no-energy bill, and we would hope that it be rejected. All right. We will let you know what happens as Congress works to reach a final deal on these very important issues in the next month or two. If you have opinions about the outcome, please contact your senator or representative and let them know. And as always, please let us know. Drop us a line if you have an idea for a future podcast or just a question. My guests today have been Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, Jerry Taylor, and API's Chief Economist, John Felmy. Gentlemen, thank you very much both for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Energy Tomorrow Radio, brought to you by the people of America's oil and natural gas industry. For more information about this podcast or to submit questions for future shows, visit energytomorrow.org. That's energytomorrow.org.